Welcome, everyone. You are listening to Forged in Fire, where we explore how LGBTQ plus leaders develop their leadership superpowers. You'll hear from guests as they share how they navigated their journey through adverse and crucible experiences to develop into amazing leaders. Forged in Fire is hosted by Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram and Dr. Liz Cavallaro. Hi, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram. I'm an astronautical engineer in the United States Space Force and one of the senior transgender officers in the military. I'm a passionate advocate for the value inclusion brings to organizations. And I'm Dr. Liz Cavallaro. I'm an adult development scholar and associate professor at the U.S. Naval War College. I'm also an experienced researcher, interviewer, leader development practitioner, and professional executive coach. Please join us as we discover the inspiring stories of how LGBTQ leaders are forged. Welcome to Forged in Fire. Today we are honored to have Kai and Jackal with us. Kai and Jackal are the co-founders of Stealth, a transmasculine podcast which captures the stories of trans elders and is in the middle of its third season. You can check them out at transmasculinepodcast.com. Jackal is a trans man who grew up in the Los Angeles area and began transitioning around 1998 in the supportive Seattle community. He's a passionate anti-racist and anti-oppression advocate currently involved in two projects helping people hone their English by discussing feminine, trans-inclusion, intersectionality, and racism. He identifies as a trans man, FTM, non-binary, and genderqueer, and also as white, working class. He loves karaoke and currently lives with his dog and two cats. Kai is a queer trans man who began transition in 1995. Before beginning life as an amateur podcaster, Kai spent his free time watching reruns of The Great British Bake Off. He surrounds himself with lots of furry critters, including his clownish Frenchie, Honey. Kai enjoys storytelling and came out of the womb asking questions. He's thrilled to get to know his transmasculine brothers a little better through his podcast. Kai and Jackal, we are so happy to have you on Forged in Fire. Thanks for joining us. So, When Liz and I decided to start this podcast, it was all based around wanting to explore the intersection of sexual orientation, gender identity, and leadership. And we thought there were some pretty amazing stories to be told there that could help inform how queer leaders developed in different ways, particularly in ways that were outwardly focused and wanted to see us all flourish. Now, I know storytelling is a huge aspect of why you started your podcast. Can you each talk to us a little about the importance of storytelling and what it means to bring to light these untold stories of our elders? Kai, you want to go first? Sure. Um, Well, I think when... Uh, I, I was really fortunate, and Jacqueline and I came up came of age like a, when we transitioned about the same time in the mid to late '90s, and we were fortunate to run across trans elders at the time, and we were mentored and taken under the wings of, of trans men that had transitioned before us who had shared their stories because there wasn't an internet at that time, at least not 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 an internet that had a lot of information on it. We may do, uh, but exchanging stories, exchanging information. Um, helping us out, 
like just to figure out how to find our way and become who we are. That was, that was really incredible to me. Um, and so we would meet up in person. Uh, we didn't, we didn't do online stuff. We, we, we had groups, we formed groups, we formed conferences, we formed events, uh, we did retreats, we camped, we did all sorts of things just to meet people. So I think, you know, I've always valued storytelling. That's something that's a big part of my family growing up is people telling stories, weaving tales. Um, it's part of my heritage. <laughs> so I think it's, it's, it's pretty terrific. And, and when we, when we, came together to do this podcast, we recognized that there are lots of different ways to access information. Um, and we wanted to connect with our community again, because we had all sort of gone about, I, I, I don't know what post transition means, but sort of post social and medical transition for those of us who chose to do that. So we wanted to like reconnect with our trans men, brothers, trans mass people and connect with younger people too, as well, just to share our stories. So that's sort of what, how we came to be, I think. Jacqueline and I were both like pretty stoked about trying this out. And it's been it's been amazing ever since. So thank you, Kai. And from my point of view, I think um we also wanted to bridge a gap. We noticed that a lot of the younger generations of uh transitioning non-binary non-binary people were saying that they didn't have any role models, especially for the transmasculine aspect, or they were doing it like, you know, on their own and things like this. And so I think that beyond wanting to reconnect with our brothers of our generation and our trans elders that we had, our mentors, we wanted to provide a visibility to our generation whose stories become very lost um, because we get woodworked and become stealth without our without wanting to necessarily or without even choosing to we just become invisible and so our stories become invisible and so we really wanted to bridge that gap to provide a a connection not just to our brothers that we transitioned with or our trans elders our trans mentors but to the younger generation who was looking for mentors and for, was looking for elders you both talked a little bit about some of the importance of having those elders early on. Um, and, and we're interested in your stories, right? What were those early phases like? What was the period both before and during transition? Um, not only in terms of that support that you gained and the, and the community you were a part of, but also what you went through individually in terms of your own development. What are the skills and capacities that you gained as a result of those periods of time in your life and the developmental journeys that you went on? Kai, why don't we start with you? Yeah. Wow. That. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Um. I mean, when I think back to that time, it was the mid '90s. <clears throat> I. Um. I can't help but think of um, socioeconomic class. Um. So just at the time, I hadn't graduated from college. I was 30, and I was running. I was becoming acutely aware of like some disadvantages I had because of professional, you know, opportunities weren't available to me because I hadn't gotten my degree. So that was like a huge part of my post post transition. Uh, so after I graduated or excuse me, after I, when I started transition, it was, it was a different time period. There weren't a lot of really uplifting stories about us. A lot of the literature, a lot of the books were pretty striking, um, sometimes, um, fear inducing. Um, like when my mother, you know, found out I was trans, she, you know, I told her, I sent them a letter, like, you know, telling them what, what, what was happening. Um, she flew up to visit me <laughs> and was like, had articles from, 
you know, that were written about surgeries and photos of, of pretty invasive procedures. And she was really afraid, you know, so like she didn't have the kind of support that maybe parents would today who, who had kids who were transitioning or young adults who were transitioning or older adults like me at the time. So I think like I, 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 you know, and so back in the, in the day, my parents were unclear about what it meant for me to transition and what it meant for them as parents and my family. Um, I will say they're very, very supportive. Um, and we also had some strained relationships for a period of time. So there was a period of time while they adjusted to things where, I chose to take some space from them. And uh, that was really difficult. I went through some hardship financially. I um, happened to be, um, I got in a car accident at the time. So I was a personal trainer at the time and I couldn't do my job because I broke some bones. I couldn't, I, I had, my dominant arm was broken. I had, you know, some health issues. It, it forced me to really take a look at what I wanted to do with my life. So it prompted me to go back to school and, and I got my degree and that was like a huge support. Like I, that was like a big milestone for me. Um, and once I did that, I, I went on to pursue more education. So that was, that was a really important part of my development as I transitioned and I, my body adjusted to changes, like because of that car accident, that's how I afforded surgery, top surgery, which is really important for a lot of us. Right. So, so that's how I ended up getting it because I, I got a settlement from that. Otherwise I wouldn't have been able to access it, but that was a game changer because there wasn't a whole lot of information about how to bind, how to, how to, how to present more masculine, how to, I didn't know how to tie a tie, you know, back then when I was looking for jobs. So, I mean, I think without the trans guys who helped me, I went over to somebody's house at like five in the morning before a job interview, they tied the tie for me. And then I ended up getting myself over to the job interview, you know? So it's like, I had, I had that support. Um, and I think in terms of like my own development without, without that, that support from, chosen family, logical family at the time, I think I would have been in, in dire straits, you know, because emotionally it was really difficult. My body was adapting to a hormone that was new. Um, I, I, they started me off at a high dose cause sometimes they didn't, you know, some, occasionally they'll ramp it up now, but I started out like a quote unquote full dose. So I had to like adapt to you know, what it was, what was happening to my body while it was very affirming. It was also really different as I, as I tried to figure it out. And then I was ambiguous for a long time. So I, I was very much like people would stop me and ask me, what are you? You know? So it was very much, uh, uh, you know, that was, that's, those are my most striking memories. I think of the time was, you know, like I had a difficult time because of my, uh, I'll just say because of my lack of education about the, nuance and intersectionalities of oppression. I didn't have language for that. I didn't, I, I was queer. I was, you know, before I transitioned, I was, I was read as Butch Dyke, which wasn't how my identity was. Um, I was very masculine, very tomboyish, but I didn't understand that, you know, what, what the implications of transition would be for me. And I, and I continue to be more and more aware of that as white cis passing, person, right? Who's in a relationship with a, with a cis female. So I'm perceived as straight by a lot of people and that's not who I am, but I recognize that affords me a lot of privilege, all the intersectionalities of who I am. So that came that, that at the time back then, because I was struggling with like not having healthcare, not having an affordable wage, you know, and, and, and trans wrestling with transition. I didn't, I wasn't aware of my, my position in this world as it related to others. So I'll just say that. Yeah, let me bounce off, off of that because I think that's a good place for me to kind of tell my story. One, the mentors in my life cannot be 
lauded enough. Like they, they really helped me through some tough times and some understanding of myself and understanding of like how to transition, like actually how to do it. Because as Kai mentioned, the internet wasn't, you know, up and running like it is today. There wasn't like just Google, you know, HRT and all of the doctors, affirming doctors or whatever, you know, you just didn't have that. It was all word of mouth. So that part can't be underestimated at all. For me, I I was very femme. I was uh, in the lesbian community for about 10 years before I transitioned, but I was very femme and punk, you know, so I had a shaved head and, and was just, you know, mohawk or whatever, like just femme punk and very dominant. And so I took leadership roles a lot in my life, in my circles. Um, and when I transitioned, and I think that intersectionality piece is really important because when I first transitioned, kept trying to be in relationships with women, and that did not work for me. And I think part of it was me, not just because I wanted to identify as a gay man, you know, that's where I came to be in my sexuality, but, but, but because transitioning from a dominant woman and going into this white male privilege point of view looked like toxic masculinity. It, it, I think I had a place in my life where that dominant female persona could not translate into the trans man I am today and wanted to be in my life. So for me, um, two things happened. One, I realized how much sexism and patriarchy played a part in reality because the same things that I could say as a woman in a dominant role, in a leadership role, was not taken as seriously as the exact same thing I would say when I presented as a white male. So anything about feminism was written off for being you know, lesbian, dyke, feminist, whatever you want to call it, you know, I got called all kinds of names. But then when I became a white man saying the same things, I was enlightened, I was sensitive, I was all of these things that I was the same person, but I was just presenting in a different body. So I think that that um, showed me a different side of power and privilege and what my leadership means in the world and my responsibility to that. So I want to ask a little bit more about the impetus that actually pushed you to transition at that time. Because for a lot of folks, and particularly I think the folks that uh, you speak with and maybe of, of your generation, there was that sig- really significant barrier to getting past it and, and actually moving towards transition and, and authenticity. So it had to be something that was so important that it kind of said, it's got to be now. Was there a moment like that for you where you took that look inside yourself and said, this is it, this is my opportunity, or this is what I see as my future that I need to grab onto? I, I can go first. I think it wasn't a moment for me. I think it was a process for sure. For me, for it was a process. Um, it was interacting. It, you know, 
I, the best way I can describe it for myself is that I lived in a binary world in the 90s. You know, I lived in a binary world since I was born, 1964, through the 70s, through the 80s, through the 90s. And even in the language that we had about transitioning FTM or MTF, it was very binary and it was very directional. You were going to go from this to that. And in the lesbian community, and I was part of this too, I was part of the problem, I would say, there was this idea that if you were transitioning to become a man, you were going to become the enemy, you were going to become part of the problem, you were going to become part of the patriarchy. And so for me, I had to really process my feminist ideology inside of my authenticity. So it took it took time. It took some time. And I think for me, the the kind of overriding feeling of it has to be now, like now, you know, like this is this is my opportunity. It's two things. One, the possibility finally existed in front of my eyes that this was possible, that this was something that I could do. And two, the support, the community. <laughs> I mean, it's not just the elders and the trans mentors that I had at the time, but it's my siblings, it's my brothers that were like there doing the same thing, or maybe they had done it a year or two before, or maybe they were, you know, still struggling with their own inner dialogue and how they were going to do it and when they were going to do it, or if they were going to do medical or just do social or what, whatever it was. But that whole environment for me was just the blanket I needed to say this is okay you'll come out on the other side and you know we'll we're a community that was super important for me yeah i i think because of the lack of information and visual representation that was it was difficult for me to wrap my head around one that we it was possible and then two how would it play out in the future when i met my first trans guy friend, um, in a coffee shop and I saw he had facial hair and I heard his voice and I thought, holy shit, I would, I never knew. Hopefully this is okay to drop an F-bomb not here and there. But I just thought, wow, that's, that's amazing. You know, I, I, I really, um, found that to be, um, that that's like seared into my memory because there weren't, um, there weren't a lot of images that I had access to. So like jackals, it was a process over time. I had a friend, tell me, hey, you should check out this Seattle Weekly. There's a, an F to M on the cover. I think you'd really relate to this person. I think you might be F to M. And I was like, what the heck are you talking about? I have no idea. But of course, I grabbed it and I was intrigued. And I was like, wow, that's pretty terrifying. And he was also queer, you know, which of that blew my mind too. Because to me, it was like, how can you be, I didn't understand the difference between gender identity and sexual identity. You know, it's just such a a mystery to me, you know, so that was new. Um, I had other, you know, I had other people, I dated somebody who was trans mask that I didn't, that we never, we didn't have language for it, but we talked about transition Two two out of the three of us transitioned. So it was just really, you know, like I think that visibility and that, um, you know, that push, it came over time. And then, you know, we got information about, I got information about this is what you need to do to access care if you do want to take testosterone. Um, and so I, I mean, it was just coming in bits and part bits and starts. And so I, I think 
you know, that push, once I, once I figured out a name for it and I said, okay, this is my name, I'm going to change my name. Cause we used to go on, I think it was the AOL message boards. Um, and that was how I, I, my first post was butcher femme and my, you know, butch dyke or FDM. That's what, that's what I asked. And I, and I connected with someone who, who happened to live like three hours away, who was like, dude, you're good. Let's talk about this. And so that, that was life changing. It was little, little, little pieces like that. I know something that you've talked about on your podcast is the concept of disclosure, right? And some of the nuances that are associated with that and and understanding much like coming out that it's not just a one-time thing. And it's something that occurs in different contexts with different people. And there's a lot of thought and deliberateness that might go into that. And there's a lot of things that you have to sort through to figure out when, how, how you're going to approach it. And I'm curious about your experiences with that and also what you've learned as a result of that or what what skills are a part of kind of scanning that environment and figuring out how is this going to go and trying to make the right choice at the right time as it relates to disclosure. Kai, what what have you seen in that area? Oh my goodness. Wow. I I mean, when I moved away from Seattle in the mid 90s, it was like early 2000s. I lived somewhere where no one knew that I was trans. I was cis passing, which wasn't what we called it back then. <laughs> um, but I, I decided to not disclose. And I was also nervous. You know, I felt for the first time where I wasn't in a bubble like Seattle, surrounded by a bunch of people who are trans on, on any kind of spectrum. And so I decided to withhold information, you know, just like keep it, keep myself pretty tight to the vest. Just, I wasn't out to people there. I didn't disclose. And I, and I felt a certain degree of freedom to discover different parts of me outside of my gender identity and a professional. So I took on, like I was, I was out of grad school. I was trying to figure out who I was as a professional. I was also working in a field with children and families and I'm, I'm, I identify as queer and there are so many negative stereotypes about gay men <laughs> or being around kids. I was terrified somebody would think something about me and those stereotypes, you know, about those stereotypes. Like I have always been like completely aware of that and just how awful that is, you know, cause I'm just trying to do my job. So I, I chose to not disclose my sexuality. One, just professional boundary, you know, like I, I'm a therapist. I work in people's homes. They don't really, my job is not to like talk about myself, you know, and, and disclose you know, personal, you know, private information about my life and my healthcare. So, um, I think, you know, over time, you know, like you talked about scanning the environment, Liz, you know, it's, it is a matter of, you know, degree of like judgment, you know, in my, in my mind, you know, what is an appropriate time and place, you know, if that happens, you know, how much or how little do I want to share of my private information and let people in. And so in a professional setting, I, that's when I sort of just went from being like out about everything to being, you know, inadvertently just over time, I just didn't disclose to people. And I, I, that was from the 2000s up until about two years ago, we started this podcast (laughs) that I just was like, I cannot do this anymore. You know, I, for me, it was like, I lived in like the most remote place in the world, Hawaii. I had no trans friends in Hawaii. I was not out in Hawaii. I was working, you know, I was lonely and I, and it was during the Trump era and there were lots, of, it was a scary time and I felt so disconnected politically. That was before all the anti-trans legislation here that, that's currently in the environment was going on, you know? So I think, you know, that deliberateness about like 
to whom, you know, who do I disclose to was medical people. You know, I also was getting really good healthcare in Hawaii, you know, and that was, that was amazing. I was stunned. There was a gender pathways clinic. They had to fly me to another Island to get it, but I did. And they were great, you know? So like in medical situations is very limited. That's, that's who I disclosed to. So when I moved to the mainland, I got a job for a queer organization that was primarily providing gender affirming care for trans questioning persons. So I was out. <laughs> I was an asset. So I was out. And from that moment on, I just felt like for me, I didn't want to go back into that non-disclosing lifestyle. So day to day, do I tell my grocer that I'm trans or do I like, you know, no, I don't. But I'm out to people in my work life. I'm out to people, the clients that I've been meeting on Zoom the last year and a half. I talk about my professional experience and my background and I say, this is my community. You know, this is where where I was working. This is what I was doing. And this is, this is who I am. And that you know, to some people they'll hear it and they'll get that I'm trans or that, you know, and some people don't, you know, but I'm okay with that. I just feel so much more free. It's not a position that everybody can take. You know, there are lots of reasons to not disclose. And, and so I think that tension was so immense for me at the time. And we, Jacqueline and I were talking about this podcast, you know, our, our, our podcast is called Stealth, a trans masculine podcast. And we talk about this all the time with people because I am cool. If you want to live a non to low disclosing lifestyle, you do that. You don't need to explain it to anybody. You don't need to, you don't need to nothing, you know, and if you want to be out and out and out, do it, you know? So that's, that's kind of where I, where I'm landing right now. Yeah. Kai said so many things that just have to kind of pause and appreciate um for me some of the some of it reflects a little bit what kai said so i i too moved away i started uh graduate school i think first i started you know as as most people do i started regular college but i didn't start college until i was 40 so similar to kai's story like i grew up really working class some some of that is like how do you get into college da, da, da. like there is all of these different barriers for me um so i didn't actually start my undergraduate until i was 40 years old so it was after my transition like several years and part of it is just the comfort of not of finally being in a body that you consider your authentic self and not being having a gendered identity kind of thing if that makes sense you know like not being a trans person you know like oh you're a trans person so like in seattle everybody i knew was already i mean was already part of my network and so everybody knew whether I came out to them or not or disclosed to them or not that I was trans. Right. But when I went to college, nobody knew and I didn't tell anybody. And it's not that I was like, you know, trying to hide anything or ashamed or anything. It was just like a, a sense of relaxation that you could just be seen as your authentic self without having to explain anything. That's pretty amazing. That was pretty amazing. So, you know, I mean, I disclosed to friends once we got to a certain part of our relationship, and there was always a sense of tension for me um, because of this message. And I, I'm not sure, I'm, excuse me for, for being ignorant, but I'm, I'm not sure if the message exists as strongly today as it did back then, but it certainly existed back then, that if you disclosed about being trans, especially, like, you disclose about other things, I have diabetes or whatever, nobody blinks an eye. They don't think that you're hiding something from them. However, when you disclose about 
being trans, all of a sudden you become a liar. You become like deceptive. And hey, I'm one of our guests put it best for me. And I'm not coming out to you. I'm letting you in. Okay, so I'm not I'm not hiding anything. I'm not deceiving you about anything. I finally have enough trust and friendship with you that I'm letting you in to something private. And that's that's not how I really frame it because that's really what I believe and believe is important for our community. So yeah, so you know, I would do that, but I would definitely scan for like how the person was going to react and sometimes I did get bad reactions and sometimes I got okay reactions. And then I moved again and moved again. And in my last job actually, you know, I wasn't I didn't disclose to anybody until really like I had been been there like 6 years. And uh, and the what happened for me was the pronoun stuff came up and it was really, really big that, you know, you were supposed to put your pronouns on everything and you were supposed to do all of this like, um, pronoun announcement and meetings and things like that. And that really had, I had a really big reaction to that. And I had to sit with myself to figure out why I was having that reaction. And for me, it was this double-edged sword of, Hiding, what? No, I don't want to say hiding. I want to say denying my history or disclosing in a professional environment that I'm not sure that I'm safe in, right? So I wasn't working at a queer organization. I wasn't sure if disclosing was going to be in my best interest. And you know, like, I just don't want to be made invisible by saying jackal, he, him, his, and denying 33 years of my existence. So it, it, I really had to come to terms with how I was going to interact with this with this new new development in our community, the, the pronouns. Um, and so for, for me, that was a big part of um, choosing to disclose and keep visible, stay visible, right? So I would, after, you know, any time the pronoun stuff came up, I would always come out. I would always disclose. I would always say, I identify as he, him, but I want you to know that I'm transgender and I lived 33 years of my life as a female. So like it was contextualized. But then finally, near the end of my term with my previous employer, um, they told me to stop coming out. (laughs) They told me to stop disclosing as a transgender person. And I was like, I don't think you can tell me that. I don't think that that's legal. (laughs) So, so anyways, um, but with this podcast too, you know, I think that I've just been, I'm choosing to see my gender and my transgenderness as an asset in all aspects of my life. And I disclose more than I don't because it's important. It's important to me. It's important in the work I do. It's important in just being comfortable. 
This is such a rich topic to explore, and I think it also leads into great conversations about changing attitudes over time or changing circumstances. You know, we can go back and I'll, I'll plug Steph Schuster's book, Trans Medicine, which looks at the development of how trans people were treated. And it hits on your topic that trans people were viewed even by the medical community as tricksters uh, and were actually encouraged and told, you have to separate yourself completely from your old life, go into a new one where no one knows anything about your previous life, and move from one closet to another where you can't talk about certain aspects of who you are. And even in a recent interview we did, we had a guest uh, where we looked back on some articles about him from less than a decade ago. And you look and you see how jarring it is to read the language that was used about trans people just seven, eight, nine years ago and how fast things are changing. Is there anything you can synthesize from your experiences or hosting the podcast and what you've heard from your guests about how we see this concept of disclosure or even of just authenticity changing over time? And what does that mean for the future and for kids that are coming out today uh, and how they'll live their lives? Uh, Jackal, why don't we start with you on this one? Wow, I think Kai's the expert in this field, actually. But uh, okay, so in my opinion about synthesis, I think that most of our guests have had a sense of hope about the younger generation, for sure, and how far we've come. Um, many of our guests have spoken about how some of them have been like the the pioneers of getting some certain things changed, whether that be. Lou Sullivan in getting um, gay removed as a counter uh, uh, indication that you could not um, transition, whether that be people like James Green or other people who have like actually done legislation, you know, both through to get you know gender on genders changed on passports or identifications or birth certificates, um, medical. We've had so many people in the medical fields that have. Been and on the forefront of getting us gender affirming care and getting us recognized it's amazing right so we've had a lot of those like pioneers and yet they are hopeful they know that they you know we're older we're taking a back seat we're no longer as active as we are in the forefront of that community and the leaders the youth leaders of today are amazing and they're doing so much to push us forward in ways that make us uncomfortable make the elders uncomfortable i think that this happens excuse me i think that this happens in any generation no matter if you're cis cishet or you know or trans gay or somewhere you know on the spectrum in between like generations have like oh my god that you know what are you doing kind of thing but we also are really encouraged by all the novelty all of the all of all of the you know, it's just so interesting what's happening today. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Brie, you reminded me of the psychi psychiatrist I saw when I needed to get a certain number of sessions to follow the Harry Benjamin standards. And her pitch to me was, you have to be straight and you just live your life and you see, you just blend in, you know, and that wasn't how I wanted to live. And I found it very confusing because I didn't, 
I didn't identify as straight as a straight dude. I just really didn't. And that was what it was expected of me. I, I found that like going from one closet to another was not how I wanted to live. And it felt extremely restrictive as did the binary for me. Like I just, I think one of the things, you know, I've benefited over time is just loosening up a bit. And in terms of how I identify, how much or little, how little I disclose or who I, who I am attracted to just acknowledging all that. So I think, you know, that, sense of feeling restricted and um, really held back didn't serve me well. And I am so inspired by over time, just, I love providing gender affirming letters for surgeries as a therapist, you know, that part of my role, you could call me a gatekeeper. Okay. Yes. I'm trying to follow the standards because an insurance company needs it, but it is a joy to be able to talk to people who are younger or newly transitioning and they're, they have no qualms about, is this going to work or is this an option for me? <laughs> or can I afford it? Like, I cannot tell you how amazing that is. Like the thought of having lower surgery back then, that was just something I couldn't even wrap my head around because it's, you know, tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I was, you know, not in that position, like financially, that was not something that could swing. So I just think now it's covered, you know, by most insurance companies. I think it's amazing. I think that that, that brings me so much joy. And then seeing people politically, like young people just like, you know, mobilizing and being present and being on the White House lawn this week. And, and you know, the spectrum of gender identities, the, spe- the spectrum of sexuality is just like being present and, and being acknowledged. That is, to me, is just so inspiring. So a lot of us are, you know, Jekyll mentioned sort of, you know, we have to move out of the way. You know, I don't want to hold anybody back. I think that's part of being a good leader, right? Right? Is is allowing, you know, like not holding people back and also just, you know, knowing where I sit. So I, I think, you know, that that over time I'm I'm so inspired, but I'm also terrified because I I have no idea what it's like to be a young person in schools. You know, I don't know what it's like to be a young queer trans person being in schools. It's hard enough to be in school wondering if you're going to get your school's going to get shot up, you know, and then you you talk about all the anti-trans legislation and things like that. That is terrifying. I don't know what it's like to have it so overt and so blatant everywhere. So I I think, you know, I, I can't speak for the younger generation, but I certainly am like really inspired. I was lucky enough to be one of those people on the White House lawn this week with my 14-year-old trans kid uh, and to have him hear his president say, you are loved, you are heard, you are understood, you belong. I mean, that's magic that for someone in my generation or our generations to hear coming from your president, it's like never would have been imaginable. So pretty incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that just got me totally choked up. I'm so happy that you were able to be there with your child. That's amazing. And you're right. I think that that was inconceivable. You know, it was back in the 90s. It was don't ask, don't tell, you know, and it was and that was supposed to be a win, you know, which at the time and in, in context, it, it was, you know, but I'm so glad you were there. That's a beautiful story. One of our guests recently um, mentioned, if people want to look at the episode, it's with Matt and he um just completed his doctorate and his thesis was on uh, being a, a teacher of trans identity. And he was saying something that really touched me and really inspired me. And that is that um, trans out trans teachers don't just support the trans students in, in their classrooms and in their school, but the trans students actually give support 
to the trans teachers. Like they inspire, they uphold, they, so that we have this way inside of our community that there's this, um, cross feed where we inspire each other. And one of the things that I've really gotten, because again, like I came from a very binary context in those decades, even though David Bowie and others, Grace Jones were like androgynous and playing with gender and things like this, like androgyny wasn't like the they, them non-binary that we have today. It wasn't so tangible. And for me, like I, like Kai, don't, I don't just identify as a man. Like I'm not just on the other side now that I'm post-transition, right? Like I'm just not that type of guy. So I love having, although my pronouns are he, him, like that's fine, but I do enjoy like being part of that non-binary spectrum. Like I love embracing that part of me. Like I am a trans man and trans is a significant part of that identity. Yeah. You really have touched on something that comes up for us a lot, which I think is such a beautiful theme that the community has this ability to, to support each other and to help people move through spaces. But what also comes up a lot is it's also people outside of the community, right? There are experiences, there are these crucible moments of coming into your own and figuring out how to live your authentic life and figuring out how to navigate the world, um, even when it means overcoming adversity and, and having those experiences time and time again that on the one hand, it can be very negative and very challenging, but on the other hand, help you develop and grow. And what I have learned being a part of this has been so incredibly inspiring and motivating for me in just the idea of coming into the true adult life that I want to live, right? And so I think there are so many folks that can learn from those messages. And I would imagine with all the really interesting leaders that you've gotten to talk to on your podcast, both leaders in the community, as well as just leaders in general in their professional lives and all different industries, you've probably seen some really great examples of how how they are using those skills and using those leadership capacities to help others. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about some of the lessons that you've learned in getting to have those awesome conversations. Too many to count. <laughs> so listen to the podcast I, is what I'm hearing. <laughs> man, I mean, no, for real though. It's like every season Kai and I do this like recap of like, you know, the highlights and things like this. And I could literally go through every single episode and tell you what I've one at least one thing that I've learned, one thing that's like reflected my soul, you know, like my experience that I'm like, oh man, like I'm so glad that that part of me is validated through somebody else's experience, right? Because I think that that's important to hear yourself reflected. And also that, wow, that's a, that's a kernel that I'm going to take into my life and my, you know, like anti-racism work and all of the anti-discrimination work that I'm doing and things like that and like use it as you know, to expand my own, my own reality. Right. So there's so it's, I mean, like, I, I hate to say it, but you're right. Like listen to the podcast because every single episode has a kernel that is valuable. Yeah. And, and I'll say, um, we've had lots of representations of masculinity and leadership from the elders that are on the show. And one comes to mind is, um, Mac McGregor, Mac Scotty McGregor, who his website is uh, positive masculinity. So he goes and talks to, 
groups of mostly largely men, um, cisgender men who, um, many of whom are in the military and does a lot of educating, educating and about masculinity and does retreats and does workshops and things like that. And he, he's able to engage with, um, a group of guys in a way that like his ability to create an environment in which people can talk about these really difficult issues, you know, about masculinity and what it means to be masculine and what it means to be a good leader and a good person, you know, like he's one example of that. Like he, he's a formal martial arts instructor and like world renowned (laughs) martial arts person. So he's, he's very, he, he can occupy space that I would never feel comfortable in. So he represents that. Um, We also have just these really gracious, humble, relentlessly, you know, moving forward trans men that have been around for decades who, who just model everything that I would love to be. You know, Jackal mentioned James Green. We've had Jason Cromwell on there. We've had Jude Patton on there. Jude Patton, I think it's probably now 83. He was 82. But, but like these, these guys have been so important in providing access for us, providing, you know, just compassion um, as we try to figure this out. You know, I, I think we've just been really lucky to be able to come into our own and and to have this modeled for us. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I, I when when we were asked to be a part of your show, <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I call myself a leader. You know, I, I really don't. I don't know if that's an appropriate label for me because I'm just, you know, trying to figure it out like the rest of us, you know, and, and I, I, I can't separate like my professional life with always being really ambitious and having like this really strong work ethic, which is part of the really like huge value that I was like brought up in, you know, that, that to me is where leadership comes in. And I decided that I just don't really need to strive for that right now. You know, like I don't need to keep moving up as it were, you know, and, and I'm much happier for it. So I think like leadership in terms of just showing up and, you know, something as simple as what turned into the podcast. We're coming up on our, we've recorded, I think it's like 45 episodes so far. So we're working on it, you know, but that's been really amazing, you know, and, and people, um, speaking of oral histories, you know, people have written us and taken time to really write heartfelt feedback about their experiences and being able to hear our stories and relate to, to people. Like a lot of younger people say that they relate to us, even though we're, 30, 40 years older than them, you know, so it's pretty great. And I'm, I'm sure you're getting that kind of feedback for your show as well. Just how wonderful, wonderfully appreciated it is. What we want to make sure we talk about is, you know, leadership isn't necessarily positional leadership. Leadership is about influence. And in many cases, you know, what you are talking about, what your guests are talking about is about building these communities of inclusion, um, which we describe in our book as something that creates this positive social contagion that encourages the re-examination of old ideas. And that's something that I, I hear from you and from, as you describe your guests, that it, it forces this. And by building these communities, we act as leaders for others in ways that we may not think of as traditional leadership, but are so incredibly valuable. Yet despite that and and having these communities around us, which are incredible, we're in a time where there is a lot of backlash against 
trans and uh, other LGBTQ identities. So how do you deal with negative feedback that may occur by telling these stories? Or what do you do to recharge yourself? Because all leaders need that thing in them where, you know, this is tough work. And sometimes I have to take a piece for me to make sure I can keep doing this work. We, we've been really fortunate to not have not been trolled. We haven't, we haven't been. So I don't know if we're just flying under the radar or what, but we haven't, we haven't had any sort of negative backlash about our show, which I think is really incredible. Not on Instagram, not on Facebook, Twitter, anything like that. So I think we've gotten really, really lucky. Um, so I guess, you know, in terms of in general, how do we deal with backlash just from a broader sense? I think we've, we've tried to be creative in, in connecting with volunteers. Many of the listeners that, that we've, that we've, that we've had communicate with us have, have jumped in and started volunteering. And, um, I'll just bring up one such, I mean, we have two really key volunteers. One does our trans mask history, who is such a joy, who, um, is just kicking the pants and just dynamic and talented, beautiful writer and soul. And, and he's newly transitioning in the last few years. He's a dad. He's, he's, he's somebody that inspires me to deal with backlash. He inspires me about what the future can hold. The way he talks about life, the way he talks about masculinity, the way he talks about himself in this world as a man who gave birth to kids. You know, he's the type of person that I want to aspire to be. I mean, he's amazing. We have another another person who was on the lawn with you, Brie, who uh, Cal, Cal Dobbs, is running across the country to raise awareness for gender-affirming care for trans kids and access to sports. So he's a complete inspiration. We're interviewing him, just doing phone interviews as he makes his way thousands of miles through the South. He started in Hollywood. He's heading to Tallahassee, Florida. He is a special person who I just hope to like emulate, you know, he's amazing. So those are, you know, and I, he has so much gut and grit just to be able to do that and to be visible. Like I, that inspires me. So I think that's how I kind of stay recharged and I, I don't, I'm not burnt out by it. We have full lives. I mean, Jacqueline and I are both working. We both have, you know, relationships. We both have very full lives, but this is something that I look forward to doing every single week, you know, and I'm, I'm totally stoked. I just want to echo that. I mean, <laughs> so first of all, our volunteers um, come and go, you know, they come and go, but I value every single one of them that has helped us through the couple, the three years that we've been active and they all inspire me. Like they all, I learned something from all of them. Um, I get better at, you know, editing or doing whatever social media, you know, like it, they inspire me and I learn and grow from them. Cal Dobbs, the first interview that I had to edit for cat for, um, that Kai did with Cal, my God, this guy is just so full of trans joy. It's infectious. Like it's infectious and you can't help but be like, yeah, <laughs> like, wow. like it's not so bad you know like i mean he's confronting a lot of these you know 
states that have like the majority of or the highest volume of anti-trans legislation and he's like i'm not out here to change people's minds i'm just out here spreading trans joy to my trans brothers and sisters like he's just like he's an inspiration like for sure and if you even i mean if you listen to an interview with him and then you like cannot be happy Go, you know, like you need you need serotonin up 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 upgrade because that's it's it's just like so infectious. It's amazing. Like he's he's a boost for me too. I think that leadership, my leadership, um, always depends on staying humble, right? Like for me, it's always about humility. So you know, in in my bio and and I've mentioned here in the interview, I do a lot of. Um, anti-racism work you know like anti-sexism pro-feminism like all of these like kind of conversation clubs that i have with people and somebody asked me the other day like how do you not feel superior to the people you're teaching and i just you know had a pause and was like i need i always stay curious about the things I'm learning from others. So all of the students in the room are teaching me something and I just stay humble so that I make sure that I'm incorporating that new knowledge and I'm not feeling like superior to other people when I'm when I'm in that position. And so I think that for me, leadership really in our community, I think that if you're talking about changing the dynamic of what or changing the face of what leadership looks like, humility is key. Yeah, that is a theme that comes up a lot with our participants. And I think it's it's one of those things that falls in line with the the sort of inspiration of why we're doing this work, which is seeing the ways in which the personal journeys of people in the community result in, even through facing adversity, some of these skills and attributes that they then bring into their leadership roles um, and, and humility absolutely being one of them. For us, we think that you are absolutely both inspiring and absolutely both leaders in this space. And we really thank you so much for the work you're doing. But given that you are today on the other side of the microphone, we want to make sure you have the opportunity um, to talk about what it is that you hope to see out of this work, right? So we are so thankful that you accepted the invitation to be on this podcast, but why did you accept the invitation and what was it that made you want to be part of it? And what do you see, what do you hope to see out of this work? Kind of like Kai, I, we were both like, are we leaders? Are they sure they have the right people? <laughs> I, yes. mean, that was, I mean, I think that, you know, it's like more than myself. And I, I think that I can speak for Kai with this. I th- think that more than me and Kai we want people to listen to the podcast because our guests are the inspiration, right? Our guests are the, are those leadership, you know, whether it be in their personal life or their professional lives or both um, academics, health professionals, you know, people on the political forefront of things like these people are really inspiring. And, I just feel like a vessel, you know, like more than anything else. I know that we're providing a platform and I know that that is, um, is a good thing to do. And I, I hear that we are leaders, but it's still a little bit hard for me to relate to myself as a leader in regards to the podcast, because I think that it's our guests that are the stars. Yep. I, I, I agree with Jackal. And I, 
I also think, you know, this is another in a line of projects to help record history. And we have a small segment of the population where we're recording oral history and having allowing people to share their stories. And we benefit from that every, every week. I think also we want to continue to, we've been really surprised because the people who are listening are younger and they're, and, and so we know the demographics and we know that most of the people that listen are under 40 and we had no idea like why, well, wow, that's amazing. You know, so we want to continue to like, um, connect with younger generations and people who are new, you know, figuring things out and allies and, you know, all, all parts of our community. And, um, from that, we've had people approach us to say, Hey, we want to do a mentor and mentoring program. So a lot of the older, older guys feel a little, um, isolated, um, maybe, you know, especially post, you know, through the pandemic, a lot of us have, have been working from home if we still work, you know, or if we work. Um, and so a lot of, and then a lot of the older guys who were, um, movers and shakers back in the day, they're just, they're just in a different place in their lives. And so some of them really just don't know how to connect, you know, and want to stay connected and relevant. And, and a lot of the younger people are like, man, I really just want to talk to people and make, make connections with people. And we've all been very isolated over the years just because of the pandemic. And so we've had, we've started, um, we're in the process of creating this mentor mentee program. I don't know how to do it. You know, like, I don't know who's mentoring who <laughs> or what that means because we're, so we're working on that, but we definitely want to, we want to build a connection. Um, we're doing that. Um, and we're also thinking about, um, having a gathering in person. Um, and that's just kind of on the hush hush <laughs> where we have a lot of people that just really want to connect in person. So we're, we're thinking about that and we may in the future at one point, you know, if, if it grows, I mean, we're not, we don't know. We're figuring it out as we go. We didn't think it would go beyond the first 15 episodes. We thought we'd put a, an epi, you know, a season out and it seems like we have some momentum. We definitely like, we hope to bring people who are on the show who aren't as represented. We, we, I mean, like we're having a very difficult time. Jacqueline and I are both white. We, you know, we're not from where our experience of being white and trans masculine and cis passing and all those things. Um, you know, we don't, we're not able to access other parts of our community in a way that we would like to. So we're trying to like further diversify who, who our guests are. And we, we had the benefit of co-hosting with Tristan, <clears throat> who's a man of color for, you know, during the season two. And we want to continue to just hopefully provide a platform, as Jekyll said, for full representation of our community. Um, so we have a lot of work to do there and we're trying to figure that out um, so that we can be better leaders in that regard because we recognize the limitations that we have. So mm -hmm. things leaders do building connections, <laughs> lifelong, long learning, thinking about others, intersectionality. So much of what you talked about is so integral to what we believe the queer community does. So Kai and Jackal, thank you so much for joining us on Forged in Fire. We do encourage people to go check you out at transmasculinepodcast.com, volunteer for your show if so interested, or volunteer for our show. Check us out at forgedinfire.org. We would love to have those ideas. And again, it was wonderful talking to you both today. You are very much our definition of leaders. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Brian Liz. Thank you for listening to this episode. Forged in Fire is hosted by Brie Fram and Liz Cavallero. Produced and engineered by Frida Castellanos and Christina George. Guest management by Trey Wirth and original music by Bridget Benemark. 
The views and ideas expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the organizations or institutions they represent. To learn more about Forged in Fire, please visit us at forgedinfire.org. Thank you.